Welcome to the Arts and Minds podcast from Dominican University. I'm Leslie Rodriguez. Located in River Forest, Illinois, in 2020, U.S. News and World Report ranked Dominican University at number 10 among Midwest regional universities and number one for best value in Chicagoland. At the heart of the university is its Catholic Dominican tradition, grounded in the compatibility of reason and faith. The programs of the Live Arts and Minds series presented on campus each year are curated to reflect that tradition and build on the university mission to participate in the creation of a more just and humane world. Today's episode is part three of a three-part series featuring conversations between faculty and alumni about pivotal issues of 2020 and the light they shine on social inequities. In the School of Social Work, Assistant Professor Suhad Tabahi has conducted significant research on migration issues. She was joined by two alumni, Roberto Sepulveda, a 2010 graduate of the Brennan School of Business, who has led diversity and inclusion initiatives at the corporate level, and social justice activist from the class of 2015, Ariana Salgado, who garnered legislative support for the DREAM Act during her years at Dominican. The conversation was recorded on September 3, 2020, and was moderated by Dominican University's Chief Diversity Officer, Sheila Radford-Hill. This is an amazing opportunity to meet two unbelievable alums and one unbelievable faculty member talking about issues related to immigration and immigration reform. This podcast will help us understand a project being undertaken by Dominican University called Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation or TRHT, which is a nationwide community-based movement for racial justice. TRHT challenges the notion of a human hierarchy by fostering solidarity across differences, sharing stories to create empathy and understanding, and using deep listening and dialogue. TRHT changes the false narratives we believe and we tell ourselves about each other. So we're here to build new relationships, alliances, and coalitions for change and dismantle systems of oppression. I'd like to start by just asking a couple of questions about how you are. We have had a rough 2020, a global pandemic, an economic recession, racial unrest, and our lives turned upside down. So let me start with you, Roberto. Roberto Sepulveda, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing uh, well. I'm a glass uh, half full kind of a uh, person, uh, and therefore, 
I try to look at the positive, uh, um, you know, lens of everything. Yeah, in regards to that pandemic, in regards to um, the issues with racial equality, uh, I see an opportunity where individuals have been mobilizing, have started having conversations. I see with the pandemic that unfortunately uh, our families uh, have had to shelter in place, but there is no time in our histories that we have ever had an opportunity to take a step back and spend time with our families. There's no time in our histories that we would have ever been able to step away from work, to step away from school, and really be in the same household as our spouses, as our uh, children. I've spent so much time with my three-year-old uh, that she knows uh, every detail of uh, my day and, and I've learned a lot about her. So, so I think that, yes, it has been very problematic. I have not been able to give my mom a hug uh, since this pandemic started. Uh, I have not been able to interact with a lot of family members, uh, but we need to look at things in regards to hope and look at the, you know, things with a positive lens, uh, and that's what I'm trying to do. Thank you, Roberto. Ariana, can you tell me how you're doing? Yeah, um, that is such a difficult question to answer these days. <laughs> I think every morning there's like a new uh thing that, you know, I feel like I have to respond to um, in terms of like the pandemic or what's going on, you know, with the election or what's going on with ICE carrying out rates. What's, what's the CPD up to these days, you know? <laughs> um, so it's just a lot. It's just been really heavy. Um, I think one thing that has definitely been keeping me grounded is the support of my uh, family and close group of friends. Um, you know, just that um, constant checking in on each other and, you know, the ways in which we've been able to show up despite not being able to share physical space with each other, right, I think has changed a lot. Um, I think, like, uh, that has really prompted at least me and my friends and family to um, start using the mail uh, a lot more, right, as a way to communicate and check in with each other, um, which, you know, just given, like, the mail uh, the threat that we're currently under, I think like hopefully a lot of other people are doing that too. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, it, I've been struggling and also just finding new ways to keep connected to folks um, that uh, look very differently than what I was used to prior to the pandemic beginning. Thank you for that. Professor Suhad Dabai. <laughs> Thanks, Sheila, for asking how we are. And so, um, um, you know, I'm, I'm humbled to be part of this conversation. I think I'm kind of where other folks are at. I, I don't know exactly how I'm feeling um, because every day, uh, you know, something new just pops up. Um, but I do know that this is a time to really reflect and to be critical and think about our positions and our identity and our privileges um, and see how we could use that to really mobilize around all of these you know, really complex and crazy issues. Um, you know, 2020 has been and continues to be a year that underscores really the institutional, systemic, and or structural racism that is endemic in our society, um, while also exhibiting how these pre-existing and long-standing health inequities are pervasive. Um, and so for me, you know, always thinking about 
how I can incorporate what is happening um, into the classroom and into my research. Um, and so just always being critical and mindful and trying to stay grounded and trying to be positive. It's hard, right? It's, it's, it's challenging to just stay optimistic um, when we see the, the, the challenges, the suffering, the fear and the death of the most vulnerable populations, looking at immigrants, undocumented folks, refugees, people of color, um, and just trying to navigate all that and process it while also trying to process that with my students and process that with my husband and my family. Um, and I have a three-year-old too, Roberto, and she's, um, you know, she's been privy to a lot of my conversations and meetings and Zoom class times. Um, and so she asked me the other day and she's like, mama, what is racism? She's three. And I was like, hmm, how do I answer that? You know? Yeah. How does one answer what racism is? Let's go back to January of 2017 to start this conversation. On January 27th, 2017, President Trump signed Executive Order 13769, temporarily suspending refugee admission and travel from seven countries, six of whom were from the Middle East. The procedural and constitutional issues raised by this order reveals that historically, the US has been divided on immigration since the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. Roberto, what came to your mind as you witnessed this order and its aftermath? Well, um, I, I believe that was the time where people mobilized at O'Hare Airport, is that correct? Correct. Yes. Uh, well, I think that what came to mind is that what I have experienced uh, throughout my life uh, and what I have seen and what many times has been hidden behind the curtain was revealed you know there is there are individuals and systems in place that benefit a certain group of people and choose to leave others out and it it, it, it has become more clear as the administration of the current president has been in place that individuals who look like me, who come from certain countries are not privileged, but it has also, it has also created unity within, you know, the community. It, it has mobilized individuals to fight back. It has mobilized individuals to take action. And what I've seen is it's mobilized and brought together people from different generations. And to me, as I mentioned earlier, I look at things glass half full and I, I see an opportunity to dismantle institutions that have not favored, uh, as I mentioned, individuals that look like me, that have my backgrounds, that have my experiences. So it, it was the beginning of uh, 
you know, the current uh, president's uh, presidency. And right from the beginning, we saw that it was just not a narrative that he was playing out to get elected. It's actually how he was choosing to execute policy. Thank you for that. I think what you have said really indicates the history of discriminating by race and nationality in immigration law. I want to go back to remind all of us before I pose this question to Ariana. The US passed the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 that prohibited the immigration of Chinese laborers. The 1924 National Origin Act that instituted discriminatory or different immigrant quotas for Eastern Europeans versus Western Europeans. Executive Order 9066 that authorized the removal of people of Japanese ancestry to designated military areas. And the 2019 attempt by the Trump administration to end temporary protected status for individuals from El Salvador, Haiti, Nicaragua, Sudan, Honduras, and Nepal. Ariana, how does this history complicate this idea that America is a nation of immigrants as enshrined on our Statue of Liberty? Yeah, um, I think that the, the notion that the US um, is a nation of immigrants and that all immigrants are welcome to start a new life, to have a prosperous life right here, um, is definitely complicated once you look very deep into the history of what um, citizenship laws have been since the very beginning, uh, right? I think we can go back to um, how citizenship laws were um, formulated to um, leave out members of the Black community, right? And so um, a lot of this racism, a lot of uh, these uh, racial motives um, to who gets to be a citizen and who doesn't are like very much rooted in anti-Blackness, right? Um, and that is just like a very like, uh, that's a history that cannot be ignored, right? Um, I think once again, when you look at things like the Chinese um, Exclusion Act, when you look at the laws of the 1920s, um, you know, you start to realize uh, that the U.S. Uh, has always had an idea of what a good immigrant should be, right? And that has never been um, anyone who's black or brown or of any minority that's not uh, white, um, generally male, able-bodied, wealthy and able to provide something back for the country that's deemed acceptable, right? Um, and so we run into the issue of like all of these laws not only being rooted in anti-Blackness, but also white supremacy and what that looks like, right? And what that continues to look like. I think it's a really important history to look back to, right? Because then we can really understand just how dangerous a statement like make America great again is, right? Um, because what they're talking about is uh, that history, that legacy that still stays with us today. Um, and what that tells us is that Trump, um, while he is very much an issue, no one can dispute that, um, is not the issue. And it's not 
the person that brought upon everything that's unfolding as it is uh, right now, uh, right? And so, uh, yeah, looking back at the history, I think we can all get a clear idea as to like who is welcome and who should be here and who should not. Um, as someone who, um, you know, is, was an undocumented person from Mexico, um, as someone who is queer, as someone who is not a male, <laughs> not wealthy by any means, right? That um, in and of itself tells you, like, you know, uh, does the US, does the government want me to be here um, uh, or not, right? And so I don't think we should at all be surprised about what the Trump administration has managed to do because I think he relies a lot on some of the laws that still exist, right? I think one really major immigration law and change to immigration policy that I always, always, always want to make sure that we talk about is actually IRA-IRA, the 1996 laws, right? Um, that passed under um, Clinton, a Democratic uh, presidency, right? Um, and these laws essentially marry the criminal system and the immigration system, right? Um, and so we can start to see the the, the problems with that, right? Who is hyper-policed, who is not hyper-policed? As the immigration system exists now, Black immigrants are disproportionately uh, stuck longer in detention centers, right? They're disproportionately de uh, deported. Um, and this isn't like a coincidence, right? Um, because we once again know, I, I think we, I hope we all know now, and it's become very clear who the police um, decide to target and who the police decide to hyper-focus on, right? Um, so, uh, so yeah. Yeah. So the Congress has passed laws that discriminates against black and brown people and people who, as Ariana has said, are not white, um, are not able-bodied, are not male, are not queer. In 1996, these laws have never been struck down because the Supreme Court has given deference to the political branches of government when it comes to the rights of non-citizens. So that deference allows for criminalization and even the term illegal aliens to be used when it comes to the rights and the privileges and the humanity of non-citizens. Suhad, I believe that in the past, you've assigned and taught Ian Lopez's 2015 book, Dog Whistle how coded racial appeals have reinvented racism and wrecked the middle class. Do you think that immigrants, asylum seekers, and refugees have become a kind of dog whistle in today's America? Right, and so there's, there's a lot to unpack here. And, and part of the curriculum that we have is to allow students to really understand what is happening today. Understanding, again, these coded racial appeals and these epithets that have been used time and time again um, in elections and election years and throughout the political process. 
Um, and so, you know, is there this covert racism, overt racism? What is happening? What is happening today? So we know historically those coded racial appeals have been uh, part of our political system, have been embedded in our society in the way that we're conditioned to think about, you know, certain people, right? When we think about welfare, who comes to our, our, our head and why, why, why do we think about black women when we think of welfare policy, who instilled that in us, right? This notion of the welfare queen and what does that look like? And these are all these, these racial, coded racial appeals that we see, these dog whistle politics. Today, and what we see today is, is straight up racism, right? Straight up racism and racist policies um, against black, brown and indigenous communities. And so while, you know, we could talk about past presidents, um, you know, liberals, conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, they all use it, right? It's, it's not only used in one political party. It's not only Republicans or the conservatives that, um, that use these racial epithets to really garner support um, from their base, right? But we see this tactic used time and time again, and it's effective. And that's what's scary about it. And that's what Ariana was talking about. Like, it's not just Trump, it's, it's the folks that follow Trump, that believe in it. It's this ideology that continues to permeate within our system and our society that's so endemic and it's so pervasive and it's so dangerous. And oftentimes people don't realize they're feeding into it, right? Because you hear it and it's not maybe so, so overt there. It's not really out there, it's coded. It becomes ingrained, we then internalize it and then we repeat it and then we think about it and then we vote based on um, on these false notions of who certain people are. And so we definitely see that today, as you talked about, even look at how certain law laws and policies are enacted, alien, illegal alien, just the terminology that's used, um, dehumanizing people, um, looking at the Arab and the Muslim population, again, act against terrorism, Muslim Islamic extremism. You can't even say the word Islam without then accompanying it by extremism or whatever it may be. And so I think today what we see um, in this Trump era is outright racism and outright racist policy, where before, Again, those things were used where it was a bit more coded and subtle. Um, I think today it's, it's all out there, right? And it's appealing to that base and it's promoting that white supremacist um, ideology and notion that this is our country, this isn't their country. Um, and again, you know, we, you know, we talk about institutional racism, structural racism, um, systemic racism, you know, and uh, Ibram Kennedy talks about institutional racism, structural racism, systemic racism, ra racism as redundant, right? Racism in and of itself is designed um, and embedded in our system and our structures. So it, it's, it's already systemic. It's already structural. Um, it's already part of who we are since the inception of the United States. Um, we've, always, we've always struggled with this issue since, you know, again, since, since in our inception. If you look at racial formation theory and what that asserts is that, again, America was founded on these racist ideals as much as we promote and tout democracy and independence and, and all of that. And you talked about what's written in our Statue of Liberty that we're a land of immigrants and we welcome, you're tired, you're hungry. Um, we see time and time again that we've closed our borders and closed our doors to, to those that are most vulnerable and most in need. And who are those people? Yeah, they're people like us. They're black, brown, 
folks um, that are coming to seek refuge in the United States. Why? Right? Why are they seeking refuge? It's oftentimes we neglect to understand the histories and the legacies of colonialism and imperialism that we've caused. Why are folks from Guatemala and El Salvador um, fleeing the, the, the lawlessness in their lands and the corruption of their government? Why are folks from Iraq and Syria seeking refuge here in the United States? Well, you know what? U.S. foreign policy has, has a big hand in that. And we need to understand that and take responsibility and accountability for that. Um, and so when we hear that, when we hear those dog whistle politics and when we hear that outright racist, xenophobic rhetoric, we need to call it out for what it is um, and remind ourselves of our dark history and our dark past, right? And that doesn't mean we're unpatriotic, right? Where folks say, well, these, you know, they criticize our government and they criticize our system. Well, that is what a good law abiding citizen or person should do. We always should strive to be better. And a part of that is, is being very critical about our history, um, about our political process and where we are today. Thank you for that. Um, speaking of now this idea of what good citizenship is, I, I want to move to one thing about good citizenship is that we know that the United States has developed a visa program. And this visa program particularly that I want to talk about is the J-1 visa program. Um, J-1 is a non-immigrant visa that's issued by the United States it's issued to research scholars and professor, professors, students, and um, people obtaining medical or business training or working in certain sectors of the economy. All applicants must meet certain eligibility criteria, meet English language requirements, and be sponsored by a university, a private sector, or a government program. Roberto, from your perspective, is this process becoming more challenging under this current administration? Well, I'll tell you the, the process is becoming more challenging, but it has been challenging for a while. And we mentioned uh, race and racism. I also want to bring up uh, classism and the working class communities, the working poor, uh, so when it, in regards to visas, I will tell you that certain individuals, though, when they come or they're sponsored by corporations, do have different, and, and I, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I'd like to give this perspective. Um, working in the corporate world, uh, I've seen where individuals from uh, various countries, whether it's South America, whether it's Africa, whether it's Asia, whether it's Europe, come to the United States sponsored by a corporation. In doing so, they do not face the same realities as the working poor or as uh, immigrants from the working class. They come and they're sponsored and they're put into uh, corporate housing. Uh, so when their kids then go to different schools and have different realities. There then becomes a disconnect from the Argentinian coming to the United States uh, as an executive to someone who has crossed several borders 
to make it to the United States and now is working in the service industry or uh, is trying to send back money to their families. So, so there are different experiences uh, from the working class community and individuals uh, from privileged communities ha are facing different realities. So that's the perspective that I wanted to share. So in 2019, 353,000 J-1 visas were issued. Based on what you just said, how do you think issues related to the intersection between race and class have affected the number of visas that have been issued? I, I think there's a, a narrative to blame immigrants and it has extended to immigrants from uh, that are students, as you saw re recently, how uh, students were going to be shut out of being in universities. And, and, but the backlash uh, quickly uh, made the administration change course. Uh, so even though there is, I would say, some challenges. I, I do feel that the overall narrative of the immigrant and the working class immigrant, there are some, in, there, is, there is a separation, but the, the overall narrative is that all immigrants are bad. And that is where an immigrant with certain privileges has to look back and say, you know, I was treated, I had these privileges. I, I came into this country, I was studying to be a PhD. I, I was on a, a visa because this corporation sponsored me. And, and, and before, I don't think they necessarily, some individuals reached back to other immigrants and related. And I think that there's a connection point in this point in time. Okay. The connection point I'm sure, Ariana, that you see from a community organizing perspective. And so I want to ask you something about ICE. Since its founding in 2003, the U.S. Immigration and Customs Agency, or ICE, has really become a militarized law enforcement presence in communities. Um, from your experience, has ICE become a dangerous presence in immigrant communities? And if so, how? Yeah, I think um, ICE has always been a, a dangerous presence um, in the community, right? Um, I think before ICE, INS agents and Border Patrol agents were also a dangerous community, right? So I do get the appeal of people saying like, oh, they're so recent, it's just since like 2000, you know, whatever, like we can get rid of them. And it's like, yeah, but they build on a structure that was already existent, right? That was dangerous prior to that. And I think like one very important thing to mention is that, um, you know, it happened, um, that ICE was created under the Department of Homeland Security, right? And it, it happened right after 9-11, right? And it happened on top of like all this um, attacks um, against Arab communities, against um, uh, Muslim communities, right? And positioning them as terrorists, right? And the developing of these institutions 
under DHS really made it seem like anyone who was foreign or anyone who didn't fit like a certain criteria was um, a threat to the country, right? And therefore we needed this entire new DHS, you know, like thing to defend the country of these threats, right? And I think like the, that narrative has persisted throughout and has made it very dangerous, right? Because um, if you hear of people getting picked up by ICE, right? Um, and then ICE publishes a press, uh, you know, advisory or pu publishes the names of people that they detained, they will also, also go into detail about like whether these folks had violated immigration uh, laws before, right? Or had violated some kind of criminal law in the past, right? And so it's once again, um, using that information to continue on the narrative of like, these are dangerous people. These are people that we don't want in our country. These are people that are bad and therefore we might, um, you know, it's, it's justified that we keep them in detention centers long-term, right? Um, or that we expel them from the country um, completely, right? Um, so just kind of want to base it, like give context to, to that, right? And how they've always been a terror and what that has looked like recently, right? Um, especially under the Trump administration, um, is us going back to um, experiencing like massive raid operations like we did, um, you know, like what my parents would tell me about in the 90s, right, like early 90s and things like that. Um, and even prior to that, right. Um, May 2018, it, I think was like a really significant year for the immigrant community, right. We saw a massive raid, um, an operation that lasted um, over a week here in Illinois in different parts of the, of the state, right. Um, that really devastated the community, removing people, kidnapping people, caging people, right. Um, and it also added a lot to the fear. And what those raids look like, right, is um, you literally walking down the street or you driving your car, right, and an agent um, who's very much uh, looks like an agent because he has a gun, he has a vest, but he's not identified, right, is coming up to you and asking you if you have documentation, right? Um, and it doesn't matter whether they're entering a birthday party, which they did, um, armed with guns. <laughs> um, it doesn't matter, like, you know, where you are. Um, but they have deemed that this is a job that they do and they must remove all the all the threats, right? Um, and so it's really worrisome and it's really dangerous, not only because of the weapons um, that they bring with them every time they do raids, um, they bring a lot of weapons, they bring a lot of backup, sometimes with the collaboration of like the local police departments, um, but they're also doing things that they very much should not be doing, right? Like carrying out traffic uh, stops, that is not within their jurisdiction and they do it anyway, right? And um, one thing to be super clear again, once again, aside from the weapons is that um, they feel at liberty to violate people's rights because there is literally no, like, no one that they have to be accountable to, right? Uh, with the exception of our president who I'm sure if you tell them <laughs> this stories will justify it, right? Um, and so once again, they're very dangerous because there is no form of accountability. No one is holding them accountable, um, you know, and they are, uh, they are overarmed. I mean, like they have so many weapons uh, that they shouldn't have um, to begin with. And so they've been a threat and they continue to be a threat um, in our community. Thank you. I wanna move to deferred action for childhood arrivals or DACA. About 650,000 DACA recipients were protected from deportation by the June 18th 
2020 SCOTUS ruling. Suhad, what actions do you think citizens can take to understand this, to better understand this ruling and to support a path to citizenship for DACA recipients? So I think first and foremost, I think we need to educate ourselves on who these people are, right? And it goes against this um, xenophobic rhetoric that we hear that, again, these people that are coming in, they're taking our jobs, they're doing all of these things, they're not contributing, they're not paying taxes, um, they're not law-abiding um, uh, individuals and people. We really need to, um, to, to really tackle that and really need to address and to highlight all the contributions that DACA recipients um, and their families have brought to this country, understanding the rich diversity that they've brought and their contributions in every aspect and every arena um, of American society. And so in health and education and medicine and um, social services and all of that. And so it starts with understanding why these people came, why, why are they here? right? What are they doing? What are they contributing to society? And dispelling all of those myths that we often hear um, our politicians who, who are against this and against folks from really living, living their life, folks that have been here and, and call America home. They've been here longer than they've been in their quote unquote country of origin, right? They've been here 20 or 30 years. They've, they've built their lives here. They've had children. And so what does it mean and what does it look like for us to remove a parent, remove um, an individual that has established their life here and has created a better up, created better opportunities for their children, removing that person um, and sending them back? Uh, what are the implications of that? And what would that do to the fabric of American society? And so I think it's really important for all of us to educate ourselves on, um, you know, who these, you know, who DACA recipients are, what they contribute, uh, again, dismantle those myths, dispel those myths, and really support um, and advocate and speak to our legislators, state and local officials about how important it is that we continue to promote sanctuary cities um, and to provide a, a home, a welcoming and safe home um, for our, our, our DACA recipients. Um, and so again, it's, it's, it's education around it. Um, and there's opportunities here. And I know, even with, um, you know, with the COVID uh, pandemic, some, uh, you know, some states have really taken um, on going over the federal federal laws uh, and providing uh, DACA recipients, for example, to receive unemployment benefits during this time. We know states like New York, California, Colorado, and Texas um, have really added those laws and amendments. And so we really need to push for that. We really need to push um, to, to help sustain them during this difficult time, um, as well as, again, getting that pathway to citizenship, not making that barrier, making it easier for folks to be able to, again, um, live their lives as, as they have, continuing to contribute to the rich fabric of American society. That really sets up the next question that I have for Roberto very well. You know, um, as an MBA grad from Dominican and in your work in global inclusion and diversity, for SC Johnson. I'm wondering, Roberto, how can the corporate community help dismantle the very mythologies or false narratives that Suha talked about, not only for 
DACA recipients, but for refugees and asylum seekers, who in fact are great contributors to our society in many, many ways. How can the corporate community join the fight to change these narratives? Well, I, I will tell you that um, just, just as an update, I, I've left the corporate world as of last year and actually and am currently uh, helping uh, uh, elect uh, uh, diverse uh, elected officials. Uh, you know, so I'm a campaign manager for the congressman of the 4th Congressional District. That's why I was at the presser right now with the governor. Um, but in regards to my corporate world experience, I think it has to be similar to uh, what we do with uh, politics and elected officials. It has to be grassroots. So the employees have to mobilize. And besides the employees mobilizing, a lot of these companies, uh, if they're consumer product goods companies, if they're selling a product or service, then we have the ability to speak with our dollars. We have the ability to speak with social media to communicate and hold these corporations accountable. So not only are they accountable to their shareholders, which is what many companies have always say is that they are held accountable by their shareholders, but there are also other stakeholders in place. And I think that as consumers, as people who purchase products and services, we need to be more active and we need to speak up uh, so we can choose what company we buy our products. And I'll, and I'll give you an example. So the LGBTQ plus community uh, has uh, the Human Rights Campaign Corporate Equality Index, where they send out a survey every year to understand how corporations are being inclusive to the lesbian, gay, uh, to the LGBTQ plus community. And in doing so, that survey then gives a score to these corporations and individuals make purchasing decisions based on those scores. Individuals make decisions to go work at these companies because of these surveys and these scores. And I think that uh, the immigrant community should um, get together and uh, have a similar survey for these corporations and hold them accountable. Thank you. I think that's a very good suggestion. And it brings me to ask Ariana. So Ariana, you're a Dominican alum. How has your Dominican experience prepared you for the work you're engaged in now? Um, yeah, and I think like I want to add my two cents to this whole notion of like immigrants having to be or having to prove that they're worthy or that they give back to the country um, to like be deemed uh, like good enough to stay. I, I think I wanna complicate that a little bit um, because I think it lands us in a really dangerous place, right? Um, and I think it, it goes back to what Roberto was mentioning, right? That generally we're always like, oh look, but this DACA kid has a 4.0, is a math student, is gonna go do blah, blah, whatever, right? This amazing thing. Like this is a type of immigrant that we need, right? Where then like the mom who is working at the McDonald's to make sure that like the kid is going through school 
is deemed disposable through that narrative. Right. And so I think that we just have to be very careful when and, and I see the incentive because during my Dream Act years, when I was running around convincing, you know, reps and senators to pass the Dream Act with my cap and gown and, you know, raving about how good of a student I was like I saw I saw that as a way to humanize me. Right. And to say, hey, I'm worthy of staying because of all of my great things. Right. Yes, I'm undocumented, but look, I'm in college, you know, um, and I think like just learning about how much that narrative has been turned against us as undocumented students and as like dreamers, right? To be like, yeah, you'll stay, but like, we're gonna get rid of your parents. <laughs> it has been a really dangerous one. So I kind of want to push back a little bit of that, right? Um, and, and not kind of like say that immigrants are, are worthy of our support and uh, staying here because of what they bring back, right? Because I think that that is also an idea that's deeply rooted in capitalism, right? And what we can get out of a person and what, we, what that person can give and produce um, that, you know, defines their worthiness. And so as, as like a person, I just kind of want to push back a little bit on that. Um, to the question about what Dominican um, or how Dominican shaped me, right? Mm -hmm. I think in, in a lot of ways. Um, I, uh, I was part of the history department. I graduated, um, you know, um, as a historian. Um, and I think that I really want to give a shout out to like two, uh, you know, professors in that department. Um, uh, Dr. Douglas and um, uh, Dr. Um, Lee Florenic, who I think that through their courses and through the readings um, that they very intentionally chose um, to cover history and really teach, you know, their classes and root them as to like what, you know, where are all of these current issues coming from, right? Um, and as I remember, um, Lito always saying, like, history does not repeat itself because it's not under the same conditions, but we do carry on a lot of these things that happened then, right? I think um, all of that to say that the lessons that I took away from folks in the history department, um, you know, especially from those two um, uh, professors, really shaped um, my understanding of the world that we live in now. Um, and the role that I wanted to take uh, moving forward after graduating. Thank you. Um, Dr. Tabahi, you are um, in the social work department, in the school, uh, in the College of Applied Social Sciences. Can you say a little bit about how the School of Social Work views the curriculum as it relates to teaching critical consciousness. Yeah, so um, before I touch on that, I wanted to thank Ariana for again underscoring that really important notion here that um, you know, oftentimes people of color um, and, you know, when we're talking about DACA recipients or anybody else, immigrants, refugees constantly have this burden of proving their worth. Um, in, in being here in the United States, right? Constantly struggling to show that and to prove that where maybe other immigrants that are um, from European countries don't, don't necessarily have to carry that same burden, constantly have to prove ourselves worthy. Um, and we've seen that obviously delineated through our welfare policies and other policies um, throughout the course of our history, this worthy, unworthy um, type of notion. And so I really appreciate you underscoring that and you totally should have gotten a degree in social work. 
um, uh, because the, I mean, you, you speak uh, as a social justice worker and I know you're a social justice worker. You don't need a degree or education to really confirm that it's your passion, it's your heart and it's, it's what you do and live and breathe every day. Um, but we really love people like you in, 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 in uh, you know, to be part of that community. Um, so speaking to, you know, our social work curriculum and critical consciousness, I think we always have a lot of work to do. Our learning never stops. Uh, we can't keep our curriculum stale. We always have to continue to look at what else is out there. What are we missing? What are the voices of some of the students um, that, you know, that we serve? What are they saying? Do they see themselves represented in our curriculum? And I think that's really important work for us to, to continue to undergo, to be critical of ourselves um, as educators, as social justice workers, as practitioners, as researchers, all of that to really look and assess time and time again and reassess what else do we need to do here? Who else needs to be included? Why are we only looking at certain communities from this very deficit-based lens? And yes, social work, again, really strives to look at people and their contributions and communities from the strength-based perspective, but yet we continue to talk about homelessness and substance abuse and all of these issues as they relate to communities of color, right? With neglecting to address the assets that they bring, neglecting to address the resilience that these communities have um, amidst all of the craziness that we see today. And so some of the things that we're undertaking is we're, we are looking at our curriculum now um, for our, our, our uh, reaccreditation and a group of us, Sister Peggy, Leticia, and myself have been part of the Title V team, part Title V Part B team to really look at our curriculum and to see how we could be uh, more critical and mindful in addressing issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. As a Hispanic serving institution, are we doing enough, right, to, to really include the narratives of our students and where they come from and what that looks like? Some students, um, you know, after the, the murder of George Floyd, came and said, you know what, Sohad, we don't feel as Black students, we have representation in the School of Social Work. We want that representation. What can we do? And so now we're working on creating a Black Social Work Association. And part of their charge, I was so proud of our students, um, and I would never underestimate their ability because they're all brilliant and amazing um, individuals, was asking the School of Social Work to really look at our curriculum um, and include those lived experiences and narratives that really highlight and underscore um, the successes and the assets and the richness that the Black community brings um, and, and not continuing to look at it from this victim um, approach. And so I think we have a lot of work to do. I mean, I think we have a lot of dedicated people who are willing to put in this time and effort and energy, uh, but that means we continue to educate ourselves, to ask our students like Ariana and alumni to come back and say, hey, you know what, now you're out in the field and now you're working. What was missing from your education? What could we have equipped you better with in order to kind of confront all of the, you know, the racism and the oppression and the discrimination that you continue to face and you help your, you know, clients um, and their families navigate. And so being very critical and mindful. Um, and so that's something we're excited to be doing. And so hopefully um, with our reaccreditation and within the next um, year or so, we are looking at how to include different modules that do address critical consciousness. How do we apply that? And not only in theory, what does that look like in practice? Because oftentimes that's where it gets lost. I get it, I get free air, I get critical consciousness, I get praxis, I get all that, but what, what does that mean? How do I apply it? What does that look like for me as a practitioner? 
even as an individual and personally, how can I apply that to my own life? Um, and so really trying to find that link and making it applicable um, to our students. Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation and we've covered a lot of ground. I really want to thank all of you for being here and for really leading us through a thoughtful and nuanced approach to an extremely difficult and complex problem. And also giving us some good ideas for a solution. So I wanna thank you, Roberto Sepulveda, and I wanna thank you, Ariana Salgado, and I wanna thank you, Dr. Suha Tabati, for um, all of your work. And I think this is a wrap. Thank you for joining us today. This conversation was excerpted in the Fall 2020 issue of the Dominican Magazine, which can be found on the university website www.dom.edu. That's www.dom.edu. Schedule for live Arts and Minds programs can be found online at events.dom.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to the production team of Samantha Barr and Patrick Serrano. Theme music is 10 Days Sailing by El Ray Music. Closing music, so proudly Dominican, composed and played by Sue Kaczynski. The views and opinions of the speakers in the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Dominican University. A wise Dominican sister once said, The search for wisdom, for love, for truth, is strenuous and unending. It takes good companions to persevere in it. Thank you for joining us.